me begin this morning by asking you guys a question. What is at the heart of the gospel? What would you say is the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ or the good news? That is what the gospel means. I wonder how you, Christian, would answer that question. You just go ahead and jot it down this morning. I asked my kids this this morning. What is at the heart of the good news of Jesus Christ? This is, after all, exactly what the, our king has to the ends of the earth. So God forbid we would forget about what the gospel is or that we would neglect what the gospel is. This is the king's edict that he has published and that he wants made known to the end of the earth. This is the good news that saves. And from our passage today, from our passage this morning, we have the opportunity to look at the very first Christian sermon ever preached in the age of the church. And we are reminded about what the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ really is. So let me encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 2, and we are in verses 14 to 41. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 41. I know it's in your bulletin, but let me encourage you for the sake of biblical literacy, if you have your Bibles, just let me encourage you to just go ahead and flip there, as I think that that will be useful for for you, because you can look at the different contexts and whatnot as the Lord brings verses to mind. So as you turn there, remember this here is the very first sermon in the age of the church. The church age is the time between everything that happened between Christ's first coming and the second coming of Jesus. So we live in this church age, in the age of the church. We live after Christ's death, his resurrection, his ascension, his pouring out of the Spirit And we await the day, the undisclosed timing, for when he will come to judge as he has promised. What is clear from what we have seen in the book of Acts so far as we walk walk through the book of Acts is that God was bringing about his plan to save sinners in Jesus Christ, all according to his steadfast love. So here God is fulfilling all of his Old Testament prophecy, right, that he said in the past, in the Old Testament, ages before Christ came. He's fulfilling all of that in Jesus Christ. God was saving sinners by the good news of Jesus Christ. And God here was gathering people into the church where Christ is Lord and head and Savior. Christ is the good news. And Christ's church is to keep that good news as the center. The church is to keep Christ at its center. This is, in fact, God's idea. So, How do we see that Christ is central to the good news? How do we see that Christ is central to the good news? And that's our main idea for today. We see first, if you will look at the passage here, Christ himself is working sovereignly. Christ himself is working sovereignly. Go ahead and look at Acts chapter 2. And uh, I'll just take some time to read, read the entire passage here. And you'll see here how Christ is working sovereignly in pouring out his spirit specifically. Christ is working sovereignly by pouring out his spirit sovereignly. So here we've already seen that Christ has poured out his spirit. Miracles happen. People are speaking in different languages that they themselves didn't even know previously. And they're speaking about what the mighty works of God in Christ. And look how Peter explains to the whole entire crowd what's going on there in 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, that is the disciples, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. 
and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose. They actually thought that they were drunk because they were speaking in tongues, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and the signs and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David concerns, says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. <clears throat> Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we, are, we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So again, in our previous passage, that is chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, <clears throat> just as Christ promised, he himself poured out the Spirit. He poured out his Spirit on those early disciples, and they began to, once again, miraculously, miraculously speak in these languages that they themselves didn't know. And there were so many witnesses. Imagine, right, they're in this room, the Spirit is poured out, they eventually go outdoors, right? They spill out into the streets. And then the Jews and then the converts to Judaism who were already there for Passover, the Passover feast, and then they stayed on for the Pentecost feast. They gather around. They start hearing these people speak in the very languages of their hometown. 
because these folks had gathered from all over the Roman Empire to return to Jerusalem, as they did every year for the Passover and then the Feast of Pentecost, which celebrated a new harvest. So imagine the thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of God-fearers, those who say that they love God, those who say that they worship God, and they come to Jerusalem for the worship of Yahweh. The Spirit of God is poured out, and here we have the first sermon for the church age. And Peter, of course, is the one who seizes this opportunity. Now, if you guys know, if you guys remember anything about Peter, there is a big change here. Right? Here he's bold. Here he's filled with the Spirit. But previously, this is the same Peter that cowered when the girl asked him, Are you not one of the disciples who was with Jesus? Peter denies being with Christ and being of Christ. But here he's changed. Here he's changed. He's bold again. He's filled with the Spirit, and he preaches Christ. What does he say? Look there in verse 15. He's, he explains, look, these people are not drunk, as you suppose. The hearers, they thought that the people were drunk, right? The, the early disciples who were speaking in tongues, there were a total of actually 120 of them. And he says, that, look, they're not drunk because it's only the third hour of the day. He's saying, look, it's not even logical. Even if some people were to abuse alcohol, as some of you guys have in the past, some of us have in the past, right? You don't drink at the third hour of the day, the early time of the day. You drink later on or after a meal or such. But that's not what's going on. He says it's absolutely illogical. Instead, what does he say? He says, but let me explain. God is on the move, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. He says, this was what was uttered through the Old Testament prophet Joel. Written ages before Christ came. Way before the arrival of Christ. How does Peter know that God was on the move then, fulfilling his promises in Christ? Well, you guys remember Luke 24. We've mentioned this repeatedly in our sermons in the book of Acts. Where there, the resurrected Christ appears to his disciples. And what does it say in Luke 24, 45? You can just write it down or you can turn there. It says that Christ opened the disciples' minds to understand Scripture. Luke 24, 45 says that Luke 24 44 and there he says that everything written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms would be fulfilled in Jesus that's just a, a different way of referring really to the whole Old Testament the law of Moses the prophets and then the writings that is the Psalms would be fulfilled in Jesus so we got to wonder right as we as Christians we're looking back in history here was Joel 2 one of the verses that Jesus opened up their minds to understand. It would have been so fun to be a fly on the wall or a bug on the path there as, you, as we would be able to witness Jesus Christ blowing their minds, maybe from the book of Joel, certainly from the, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms about how they are fulfilled in Jesus. If you look at this Old Testament passage right, it, that, that, that uh, Peter quotes here, straight out of Joel, you can see the gist of what's going on here. Just go ahead and scan it there. God promised to pour out his spirit as he promised to change people's hearts, to cause them to be born again, and then to empower them to live for God. That's sort of drawing from multiple passages there, that, that's, as I've summarized it. But here it's to pour out the spirit. They're going to prophesy. They're going to speak. Mighty works are going to be done during this time, and this age of salvation would begin. And all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Just as Joel said, right, God's people were prophesying. They were speaking about Christ, the disciples here, who were filled with the Spirit. 
They were speaking in tongues, speaking the mighty works of God, it says in the book of Acts. If you read these verses, you see that there are also phenomenological descriptions that would accompany these last days, right? Joel says, or Peter says, in these last days, such and such is going to happen. So you can read those descriptions there, these occurrences, these unusual occurrences uh, in the earth those days. Now, we're not sure, again, where, when these things might have happened or when they might come to fulfillment. We do know that when Christ Jesus died, the sun was turned to darkness. We also know that this same passage, or at least one of these verses, in terms of these phenomenological occurrences, is quoted also in Revelation. So at least that time, they were looking forward to its fulfillment, or at least some of its fulfillment. But we know that what has not occurred will occur in these last days. Right? Think again, in between the two comings of Jesus, these last days, God is bringing to fulfillment all of the things he has promised in Jesus. But with all, with all the talk of the clouds and the blood, right, do not miss this. These are, in fact, the days of salvation, in verse 21, in Christ. This is the good news in Jesus. As it says later on there, that he himself is the one who has poured out the Spirit. As it says there in verse 33 of Acts chapter 2. He himself has poured out the Spirit in fulfillment with his promises to take away his people's stony hearts, their rebellious hearts, and then to give us hearts of flesh, as the prophets say. Okay, put yourselves in the position of these, the hearers of Peter. Put yourself in the position of the hearers of Peter who were the supposed God-fearers, right? The people who worshipped the Lord according to the word. They would say, you know, I love God. And we know God himself was to pour out his spirit. And so now you're telling us, Peter, now you're saying to us that the one who poured out the spirit is Christ? The Messiah, God's very chosen one? Peter says that's exactly what it means. That's exactly what it means. The Lord that you very say, the Lord that you say to worship, Christ has poured out the Spirit. And then look in, look at how Peter zeroes in on Christ even further. Uh, now again, I'm trying to put you guys in the in the foot in the shoes of those who heard Peter. And I think conviction would set in as the sermon went on, as more and more is revealed about who this Jesus is. Look at how Peter zeroes in on Christ even further. We see again that Christ is the center of the good news as he reminds them simply about who Jesus is. First, he reminds them Jesus is sovereign. He's working to act. The second thing, we see that Christ is the center of the good news because he just simply reminds them about who this Jesus is. We assume that most knew about who this Jesus was, right? They'd come to the Passover. They're celebrating the Passover feast. They hear of this Jesus being crucified, hanging on a cross. This is Jesus of Nazareth, Peter says. Go ahead and look there. This is Jesus of Nazareth. You know him. He comes from a real town. You guys know where it is. This is the Messiah, the Christ, who was a man, a real man, the man that you heard about and the man that you crucified. But then he corrects their understanding. It's not just some man working magic, healing some people. Some people then in that culture thought that Jesus was a mere sorcerer, you know, working magic, doing the very things that God detests. Right in the Old Testament, God would detest people going to evil spirits and whatnot, working sorcery as if they were the sovereign. The sorcerers, the magicians, 
dark side. No, God is the sovereign one. God detests people working sorcery and, and performing magic. He wasn't doing things that God condemns. Jesus was not doing things that God condemns, he says. In fact, he himself was attested by God. God had attested to everybody that Jesus was his son. In fact, God the son, as he worked miracles, wonders, and signs, and all these things were plainly displayed to everyone in his divinity, his power, and his authority. I see people standing in the back. Can somebody help them? God speaks and creates the material world. Well, guess what? You know, Jesus comes along, and, and who has power over the wind and the waves and the inanimate objects? Is it not the Christ? Only God can forgive sin. Well, Jesus arrives in the New Testament. What, what does he do? He comes forgiving sin. God himself has power over the spiritual realm. Well, Christ comes along, and what does he do? He casts out demons, exercising power over the spiritual realm. So here, God is attesting to everyone. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. He is the eternal son, God himself, God the son. But not only does he speak about Christ's life, he also speaks about the crucifixion. He speaks about Christ's life. He also speaks about the crucifixion. So here you can think about number three, the third thing. He speaks about the crucifixion. Verse 23, look there. This Jesus was not only attested to by God, but he was sent of God by the very plan of God. Look there. This Jesus was, quote, delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Delivered up, that language there is talking about the crucifixion. So again, imagine being the hearers. You can imagine conviction setting in. They are the ones who say, we love Yahweh, the great creator over all. Then all of a sudden they begin to realize that, oh, this Christ you're saying is God's appointed one, God's anointed one, God the Son who has authority to do all the things that Yahweh does and in fact does all these very things. You're saying that I have rejected the sovereign God, my loving God? And not just that, we have murdered God's chosen one sent to deliver says that's right you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men there so clearly he speaks about the crucifixion how Christ died on the cross for the sins of all who would turn from their sin and believe which would turn out to be many of the people in the crowd listening to Peter again they were witnesses of the events of the day which is why he simply concludes with he simply continues with the resurrection there. Well, God raised him up. You crucified him, but God raised him up, and all by his divine and sovereign plan to save a people for himself as a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. You look there at verse 25. Look there. Here again is an Old Testament passage. He begins with the prophet Job. This time he turns to the Psalms. He turns to King David, the Psalms, the writings. King David spoke of Christ there. As he prophesied in the Psalms in verse 25, for David says concerning him. David knew something of what would happen to God's chosen one. Do you guys get that? You go back hundreds of years before the Christ, and what Peter is saying is that David himself knew something of God's chosen one, namely that he would not stay dead, but instead he would be raised. This whole section is straight out of Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11. And the heart of it is, look there, in verse 27. Here's the scoop, right? 
for all of the Jews and the converts of Judaism who were right there listening. Again, who would have so deeply appreciated the Psalms written by the greatest earthly king of Israel ever. Peter said David wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about the Christ. David wrote about Jesus. This portion of the Psalms is not even about David. How do we know? Well, David's body did not see corruption. You look there in verse 29. Go ahead and skip it. He's dead. He's buried. And his tomb is with us to this very day. His body basically could be exhumed if we wanted to do that. No problem. So well, what then is David even talking about? You look there in verse 30. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, that is David, that God himself would set one of his descendants on the throne. He foresaw. David spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That, quote, he was not abandoned to Hades or death, nor did his flesh see corruption. He continues, this Jesus, God raised up, and we are all witnesses. Witnesses of what? What is God's sovereign fulfillment of all of his Old Testament promises in Jesus Christ? Christian, do you appreciate the Old Testament? You see how crucial the Old Testament is to the Christian here, to understand who Jesus is here. Understanding Christ in his full glory and beauty and love as the fulfillment of God's promises comes through understanding the promises, right? Think about marriage vows, your own, your parents, ones you hope to give. It is when we understand, is when you understand your spouse's covenant promises that you have and come to have a greater appreciation for his or her faithfulness, right? If you have no understanding and don't even care, right, about to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for sickness and in, in sickness and in health, to love, cherish, till death do us part. If you don't care about that, who cares about your faithfulness or your spouse's faithfulness? When you sin, it's not a big deal because this doesn't mean anything. You're not committed anyways. But when you understand your spouse's vows that they commit to you, even despite your lack of faithfulness, it's then that you begin to understand your spouse's love, faithfulness. Commitment, steadfast love. And so when the worst days come, or the worst character shows, because we're all still sinners, and still your spouse loves you and commits to you, what do you say? You say, wow, that is some love. You realize that the same goes with God's covenant love and his covenant promises to sinners, to us? When we understand God's covenant promises as fulfilled in Jesus, we say, wow, that is some love in Jesus Christ. When you understand God's pledge of love from the beginning, despite, Christian, your sinfulness, despite, Christian, your rebellion, we come to say, wow, what wondrous love is this, that Christ would bear my curse and hang on that tree for me about his covenant promises, just think back to creation. When God created people to be in a relationship of love with him, what did we do? The Bible says that we all sinned against him as Lord. We tried to be kings for ourselves. We chose the way of Satan even and followed him instead. And since then, all people have been ruled by sin and we have been choosing sin ever since. But what does God do? 
because he loved us. The book of Genesis, chapter 3, he says that he's the, he promises that one from the woman's line, born of a woman, would deliver us and crush the head of Satan. As Genesis continues, we see the people's hearts were evil all the more, continuing to oppose God and other people. And then he had every single right to judge immediately. Christian, what does your God do? Well, he doubled down, so to speak, promise on top of promise. He told Abraham that he was going to gather for himself a holy people who bear his name in a covenant commitment that he himself would keep. And one from Abraham's line would be a blessing to all nations. Move forward in history even more. As he's fulfilling his promises to Abraham, his descendants are growing in number as he forms his people into a nation. God gives them a covenant through Moses. They continue to go astray. God gives them his law in Moses. He reminds them of the blessings that are, in fact, in store for them who live according to the love of God and according to the law of God. But he also warns them of all the curses that come in rejecting God and his law. But, of course, God knows exactly why he's giving his law. God knows exactly the state of his people's hearts. He knows that all have sinned and all will turn aside. And so he uses the law to direct our hearts to the one who is righteous. To the one who would choose to have all of the curses of the law that were for you, Christian, fall upon him. Despite, being, despite God being faithful to multiply his people, to be faithful to his covenant promises, you advance in history a little bit more, Still, his people reject him as God over them. Frankly, they're so tired of having God as king over them. They're tired of being distinct from the nations, a holy people unto God. So they just simply reject him as king over them. And they choose an earthly king for themselves because they'd just rather be like the godless nations all around us. What does God do? What does your God do, Christian? Eventually, according to his grace, he brings them a man after his own heart that is King David and promises him that one from his line would sit on the throne forever in all of his righteousness and all of his power and all of his might he would so lead his people and deliver them you see this reference there in chapter 2 verse 30 one from the line would sit on the throne and still their hearts turn away because they would rather worship the creation rather than create than the creator Despite their sin again, though we could do this all day, right? Despite their sin again, God lays down yet another promise. And he says that one day, a day will come once and for all where I will accomplish all those things that you cannot do for yourself. I will do for you through my chosen one, my Messiah. I will atone for your sin and I will remember your sins no more. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and all who look to him in that messiah will be saved friends you realize that all of those promises in the old testament are fulfilled in christ one who would crush the head of the serpent is christ who defeated sin death and satan abraham's descendant is who christ the seed of abraham according to paul in galatians whose, whose salvation goes to the ends of the earth and where the law of god exposes your sin friends of course, that's exactly what it's supposed to do. Who are we supposed to turn to? Christ, the righteous one, who has the righteousness that we need. 
concerning God's promise to David. Christ is the one who sits on the throne forever and who reigns in peace and righteousness. In all of this, you see what is constant. It is man's sinfulness and God's steadfast love and mercy given to sinners as he pursues them in his grace and faithfulness. Ultimately, all of this is seen in Christ the Lord and Savior. It is through his shed blood that sins are atoned for. It is seen in Christ as he pours out his spirit, giving us new hearts, and as he accomplishes for his people what we could not accomplish for ourselves. You see, friends, that Christ is the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. Now, can you understand the gospel genuinely and be saved by hearing the wonderful and simple message of the gospel? Yes, and absolutely. You don't need to be expert in the Old Testament to understand and to be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Christian, you guys realize that God intends you to grow in greater understanding of all of his covenant promises fulfilled in Christ. You guys understand that? God intends you to grow in that direction. He intends for you to explore more deeply and relish more fully Christ Jesus, the Lord and Savior, spoken of in the Old Testament. And in so doing, we see greater depth of God's covenant promises and his faithfulness, despite your own lack of faithfulness. So that when we see Christ in light of our own sin, we're just like the Jews here who turned away over and over and over again. When we look at Christ, the fulfillment of all God's promises, we say, what amazing love is this? That he would lavish his love and call us to be his children. Christian, is that the tune that your heart sings this morning? If you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, you know that some people who explore Christianity, you know, they think that the Bible is a bunch of case law or, 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 or a book of, full of things that one should do and one that things that one should not do. Now, let me just say it's certainly involved some of those things at different points in Scripture. But as I hope you understood from the last few minutes, the Bible, the story of Scripture, is incredibly dynamic. We see God moving in history, God creating, man rebelling. God then saving and moving and, and pursuing his people, regardless of their sins. Bringing to fulfillment all of his works of grace in Jesus. That's what the entire Bible is all about. So again, if you're visiting with us and you've never read the Bible, or maybe you want to learn more deeply what the Bible is about, let me encourage you to talk to me. I'd be happy to try and pair you up with somebody so that you can understand the Old Testament more and the New Testament more. And you can always, a great place to begin is by starting with the claims of Jesus Christ according to his word. Who is Christ? Who does he say he is according to his own claims? I'd be happy to pair you up with somebody. You begin reading through the Gospel of Mark, for example. That'd be an excellent place to understand how Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. This is what the disciples were witnesses of. Christ's life, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, and even his ascension, and then in the pouring out of the Spirit. That is what they are witnesses to, the fulfillment of God's promises. Look there in verse 33. You see here that he's talking about the pouring out of the Spirit once again. It is he who has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Again, let's put ourselves in their shoes. This Jesus that they had ignored and rejected and called on to be crucified just a handful of weeks ago. This was 50 days ago. 
Peter here tells them that he was not just a mere man, but attested, a God, attested by God. He was, in fact, God the Son, the eternal Christ. Peter also tells them that, yes, he is the exalted one who has been raised and seated at the right hand of God, which is a position of power and authority. This Jesus, he ascended. He is the one who has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And look how he explains this again. Going back to the Old Testament, he draws from the book of Psalms, and he's in chapter 110, and he says here, King David writes, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You know, but, but again, you know, David's dead. David's in the grave. His flesh is, is gone. It's deteriorated. So what exactly does it mean when the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Like, who exactly is talking here? Well, Peter knows, right? David is not at God's right hand. Again, position of authority. But Christ is. Christ is at God's right hand. And so just like the other psalm, David here speaks of Christ, the Lord, that is Yahweh. Spoke to my Lord, that is Christ, the Messiah, sit at my right hand. Again, for the people who had ears to hear, these are bombs dropping like one after the other. We crucified the Messiah? The one who shares the authority of the throne of God, and in fact we know from Revelation even sits on the very same throne as God? God the Son himself. And imagine Peter standing up in great boldness, filled with the Spirit there in verse 36. Therefore, therefore, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. And it says there that God made this made him both Lord and Christ. It means that God fully displayed. He made it plain to all. He demonstrated that he is both Lord and Christ. And what happens? You look there in verse 37. They're cut to the heart. They're asking again, what shall we do? What is Peter's response there in verse 38? He says, he, he says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Friends, do you, see, do you see the character of God here? What might an earthly ruler do to those who had assaulted him? What might an, early, an earthly ruler do to those who caused him such harm and opposed his sovereign will as he alone is king? What might he do to those who fought for your overthrow? And fought to see that your flesh was rotting in the ground. Revenge. But not so for Christ. Now as king, again, he, he's fully justified in all of his judgments. To judge all of us immediately. But we know from scripture that God delays final judgment for a future day. Just as Jesus says in John 3. In order that in these days, the days that we are all in. Many would come to know Christ and be saved. Friends, you see what a Savior it is that you have? He who, when he was heading to Jerusalem and heading towards the cross, looked over the whole entire city of Jerusalem and wept in sadness because of their unbelief. You know, friends, that that is your Lord and Savior. He who, when he was on the cross, prayed, 
Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then as he breathed his last, he accomplished salvation for all who would ever turn from their sins and believe. And then after getting up from the dead, he tells his disciples, let's go, as a lot of young folks say these days. Let's go. This is my edict. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Disciples, you go to the ends of the earth. Church, you go to the ends of the earth preaching that forgiveness of sins is for all and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, who turns from their sins and believe. And even here in Acts chapter 2, in Jerusalem at Pentecost, God begins to answer Christ's last prayer on the cross. Father, forgive them. What happens in verse 41? 3,000 people received Peter's word and were baptized and added to the church. If you know yourself not to be a Christian, you know what repentance means? It means to turn. It means to turn away from living for yourself as king or queen, and then it means to turn towards Christ as the Lord and Savior, the King, the Lord. Repentance means turning away from living according to your own will because God's will is ultimate. Living for ourselves is sin. Living for God is great. God calls all to turn from their sin and turn to Christ as the Lord and Savior. And while Peter's hearers, right, they're Jews, they're converts to Judaism, it's not just them who have turned away. All of us, the Bible says, whether you're a Jew or not a Jew, all of us have turned away from our maker, and all of us need to repent. This is, again, all of us. You too, friend. So every single Sunday when we're here preaching the gospel, we want to do our part to hold out the gospel of Jesus Christ to everybody around us, calling all to repent of their sins and believe. And what is the promise that the Lord has laid down? He says, now is the day. Repent of your sins and you will be saved. Forgiven of your sin. Adopted into his family. You'll have a right relationship with Jesus where you know his love poured out into your heart and his peace poured out into your very heart. If you have any questions about how to become a Christian or you want to learn more about what this gospel is, friend, let me encourage you to talk to the friend who brought you. Talk to me. I'd be happy to talk to you. We just don't want to simply hold out the gospel of Jesus Christ to everybody. What is the center of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is Christ. It is his life. It's his death on the cross for sin. It is his resurrection from the dead. And it is him who changes our hearts so that we might love him again. Naturally so, right? Because we know that salvation is found in him alone. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we know as we look to Christ that you are a marvelous God, a God of steadfast love and mercy, who forgives and stands ready to forgive as your word says. Thank you, Lord. <clears throat> what wondrous love is this, that Christ Jesus, you would bear the curse that we were supposed to, that you would die in our place, and that you would grant us, your people, new life in your new life, in your resurrection. 
Lord, we pray for us as First Baptist Church and all gospel-believing and preaching churches here and in the world that we would indeed keep Christ as center in our message and that every single Sunday we would be known for, for today and into generations for preaching this gospel of Christ that alone saves. We pray, Lord, that even right now you would move in people's hearts to bring them to know you see just how good and loving you are and how you open your arms so that many can run to you to find salvation and reconciliation with you, our brave Redeemer. These things we pray in your name.